Often when you observe today's amoral world, you assume that it's never been this bad. But then you read Romans chapter 1, Paul's famous description of the moral breakdown of the Greco-Roman culture. The Roman world was X-rated. It was full of unbridled indulgence, callous consciences, self-serving idolatry, and perverted practices and sexuality. In fact, three times in Romans 1, Paul writes, God gave them up, or God gave them over. In other words, God abandoned those who had abandoned Him. When the empire fell to the Goths and the Vandals, it was not swords and spears that conquered. Rome's downfall was its own inability to control its sensual and selfish desires. Rome was defeated by depravity. Rather than conquered from without, Rome fell from within. And when Paul wrote Romans chapter 1, that bleak outlook, he was peering out his window at the city of Corinth. Metro Corinth was Paul's inspiration for his portrait of perversion. Corinth was the city that had forgotten how to blush. The Corinthian church was like a tiny boat afloat on a sea of immorality. And tragically, the gospel ship had sprung a leak. The evil in the city had infiltrated the life of the church. And in 1 Corinthians chapters 5 through 7, Paul tries to patch the leaks. The apostle deals with the subjects of sex and marriage within the Christian community. In chapter 5, Paul addresses a shocking problem in this church. He writes, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles, that a man has his father's wife. A young man in the church at Corinth was shacking up with his stepmom. Two church members were involved in blatant immorality. It was an infest of incest, and Paul was appalled. The New King James translates the first words in verse 1. It is actually reported. Commentator Alan Redpath renders it. It is commonly reported, or it is everywhere noised abroad. In short, this is the talk of the town. And Paul mourns over this. Not even the perverted pagans tolerated this kind of immorality. This was so twisted, it didn't even make sense to amoral minds. And Paul doesn't just rebuke the perpetrators. He's asking the Corinthian church, doesn't anybody see that this is staining our reputation, our witness? Verse 2, he says, And you are puffed up and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. See, worse than the sin was the church's attitude toward the sin. They were not only tolerating an awful immorality, they were proud of their tolerance. You could hear them boast in your mind, Oh, the Bible says, Judge not that we be not judged. Far be it from us to tell someone what's right and wrong. We teach grace. Sounds like a 21st century rationalization. I like how Peterson paraphrases verses 2 and 3. He says, of your, One of your men is sleeping with his stepmother, and you're so above it all that it doesn't even phase you. Shouldn't this break your hearts? Shouldn't it bring you to your knees in tears? Shouldn't this person and his conduct be confronted and dealt with? 
They were prideful when they should have been mourning. The Greek word that Paul uses here that gets translated mourned in verse 2 was used for grieving the dead. They should have viewed this situation as a loss, a loss of virtue, of purity, of honor, of character, a loss of witness. They were patting themselves on the back for their tolerance when they should have been falling on their knees and getting in these people's face. Verse 3 tells us, For indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, for I indeed, as absent in body but present in spirit, have already judged as though I were present him who has done this deed. Notice Paul here, without speaking to this fellow personally, Oh, without hearing his heart, without listening to his rationalizations, Paul renders a judgment on this man. You remember in chapter 4, Paul warned us about making superficial judgments of another man's ministry. We don't know all the facts. We don't see a person's motive. But this particular judgment had nothing to do with motives or with ministry. This was about morality. This couple were con- conducted, or they had constructed a blatant, sinful relationship, and they needed to be called out. The Old Testament law was clear about sexual taboos. In Leviticus 18, verse 8, God had plainly forbidden this kind of an incestuous relationship. This wasn't an issue of culture or personal preference. It wasn't a gray matter. No, God had addressed this issue in black and white. Thus, Paul becomes dogmatic here. The Bible has already issued its judgment on this man's sin, and Paul isn't afraid to stand up where God takes a stand. He isn't afraid to speak up where God has already spoken. Today's church needs to follow Paul's example. We weaken our witness when we tolerate immorality. Church discipline needs to be taken seriously. Well, Paul commands them in verse 4, He says, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Now again, this wasn't a struggling believer trying to straighten out his life and get victory over his sin. Hey, that kind of a person The person who wants to walk in victory, we need to help that person and be patient toward that person. Rather, this was a Christian who had deliberately ignored God's commandments and was living in open defiance. That's the kind of attitude that can't be tolerated. You remember in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us that if someone sins, a brother should go to him and seek to restore him. If he fails, then he should come back with two or three believers. We can assume here that the Corinthians had already taken those steps. But Jesus also says that if the brother refuses to hear those two or three, then he should be brought before the whole church. And if he fails to convince him to repent at that point, he should get the boot. You've heard of the right hand of Christian fellowship? Well, there's also a left boot of Christian disfellowship. That's right. Notice, though, the goal at each stage of Christian discipline. It's to bring the brother to repentance. See, even when he's kicked out of, the, out of God's family, notice what it says. 
He's being delivered to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. The idea here is to let him taste the full consequences of his decisions without the safety net of Christian fellowship. Then perhaps he'll be convinced of the error of his ways. Remember, the point of it all is for him to repent. You know, when a person is part of a church, whether they realize it or not, certain protections are inherent to being a member of a church. A church member is surrounded by support, encouragement, and resources. To a degree, the church is sheltering us all from the magnitude of our sin. Paul's advice here is to turn this guy out from the church into the storm. See, his problem was his own flesh, his I know best, his I can do it on my own kind of attitude. So Paul says if that's the attitude he's going to live in, then let him do it himself. Let him learn the hard way how much he needs to humble himself and submit to God's way. See, the church does a person a disservice when we keep a rebellious person from reaping the full brunt of what they sow. It's interesting that later, in Paul's second letter to the Corinthian church, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 8, he encourages them there to receive this man again into the fellowship. He urges them, I urge you to reaffirm your love to him. Apparently, the Corinthians go on to obey Paul and kick this guy out, and evidently it produced the desired result. The man's season of separation from the fellowship did bring about an attitude of repentance. See, church discipline is never easy, but it's often necessary, and it really does work. Well, in verse 6, Paul addresses their previous attitude. He says, your glorying is not good. And wow, how the modern church needs to take this to heart. Today's world is tolerant of everything except intolerance. Hey, just because the world loses its moral bearings and gets mushy about what's right and wrong doesn't mean that the church should. Realize we cannot be for God. We cannot love people if we are not against sin. For Paul warns, Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? You see, sin is like yeast. It works beneath the surface to permeate and to infiltrate the whole lump. It infects the bread from the inside out. Yeast is like cancer. If allowed to spread, it can destroy the whole body. But if caught early, it can be cut out. See, when it comes to bad attitudes and when it comes to blatant sin, at church, it needs to be dealt with sooner rather than later. Tolerance for it or apathy toward it is lethal. If stubborn sins aren't cut out, they can spread and defile the rest of the body. And this is why Paul says in verse 7, Therefore purge out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. Purge out the old leaven, in other words, get rid Of the infecting behavior. For indeed, Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Notice Paul calls our Lord Jesus our Passover. 
When the Hebrews exited Egypt in slavery the day before, God told them not to inject the yeast into their bread. Why? Because they were leaving the very next day. There wouldn't be time for the bread to rise. Thus, the unleavened bread and their obedience was symbolic of their faith in God's promise. And that was just one of many symbols associated with the Passover that spoke of Jesus. He's also our sacrificial lamb. He's our hidden matzah. He's our cup of redemption. As the Hebrews celebrate Passover with unleavened bread, we Christians should celebrate our freedom with a sincere devotion and with the avoidance of deliberate sin. Well, in verse 9, Paul continues, I wrote to you in my epistle. Now, what epistle does he mean? We're not sure. We call this letter that we're reading 1 Corinthians, but apparently there must have been another 1 Corinthians. This must have been 2 Corinthians. For Paul says that there's another letter prior to this one. Some Bible scholars suggest for multiple reasons that 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 14 through chapter 7, verse 1 is actually the missing letter. Other Bible scholars conclude this previous letter was a correspondence that's been lost to us today. It's an interesting discussion, but it doesn't change the meaning of Paul's words here. In other words, he's saying, hey, I've written this to you before. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous, or an idolater, or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. See, apparently the Corinthians had gotten it backwards. They had turned up their noses at their heathen neighbors while ignoring the hypocrisy within their own ranks. Rest assured, when the church views the people that God wants to reach as the enemy, we've become worthless to God. When we come out of the world, We're not supposed to shut the door behind us. Rather, we need to turn around in compassion and lend a helping hand. Yet that's not what happens in a lot of churches, is it? Saints can become snobs. Immoral people, irreligious people get the impression that the church is a club for the clean cuts rather than a hospital for the messed ups. You know, I heard a sad statistic that by the time a person has been a Christian for two years, They've basically lost all meaningful relationships with unbelievers. After two years, their whole life now revolves around the church and other Christians. They have no friendships with non-Christians and therefore lack opportunities to share their faith. Realize, I believe in the importance of Christian fellowship. But connecting to a church doesn't mean disconnecting from the world. Often we become so worried and fearful of the world infecting us with evil or our kids with evil that we don't cultivate opportunities where we can affect the world for good. It's easier just to hang out with Christians in a sterile, temptation-free church bubble than it is to rub shoulders with the lost, especially on their own turf. That's risky business to do that. 
In fact, that's like Jesus leaving the halls of heaven and coming to earth. Imagine that. That's risky. Or that's like the guy who took a risk and dared to tell you about Jesus. Do you remember him? You should be thankful for him. Maybe it's time some of us stopped playing it so safe and took a risk. Just remember, our enemy is not the sinner who doesn't know Jesus. He can't change if he wanted to change. He lacks the power. Our enemy is the person who claims to know Jesus, yet stubbornly holds on to his sin and has no desire to change and becomes a poor witness. Paul says the church needs to shun not the heathen, but the hypocrite. Verse 12, for what have I to do with judging those who, those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. You know, I get so weary of pastors who are always eager to condemn the ungodly, condemn the world. That's all they want to talk about. They're always on their soapbox pointing out what's wrong with the world. What do you expect? I mean, why would you be surprised that sinners sin, that lost people act lost? Our place is not to judge the world. It's to love and to reach the world. If the church wants to judge someone, hey, why don't we start with ourselves? Clean up the church, and then we'll be more winsome and a more effective witness. Then when God judges the world, hopefully there will be fewer to judge. Well, chapter 6 deals with another problem in the Corinthian church. Paul writes to them, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? See, the Corinthians had become so dysfunctional that they were settling their grievances in the pagan courts. And again, Paul was appalled by the horrible testimony this created. Who wants to join a group of folks so fractured that they can't even settle their own disputes? Paul rebukes them in verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? In Luke chapter 19, the parable of the minas, Jesus promised the faithful servant Because you were faithful in a very little, have authority over ten cities. When the Lord Jesus returns to earth, he'll set up his kingdom. The Bible says he'll reign over the earth for a thousand years. And apparently those who are faithful today will reign in that day. I'm hoping to get one of those cities. Probably Honolulu is what I've put in for, but... We'll see what comes out. But here's Paul's logic. If one day we'll rule cities, why can't we solve our petty problems among ourselves now? Makes sense, doesn't it? Why drag a brother before a pagan court when Christians are one day going to rule the world? Verse 3, do you not know that we shall judge angels? Boy, that ramps it up even higher, doesn't it? We'll judge angels. How much more things that pertain to this life? And this is the verse that always boggles my brain. Who knows the full extent of what this means? I mean, tell me. Psalm 8 tells us 
Man was created a little lower than the angels that one day we might be exalted above them. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 refers to angels as ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation. Apparently one day I'm going to give my guardian angel a report card. Yo, Gabe, where were you down there on Highway 78 when I had that fender bender, man? What, what, where were you? One day we're going to judge angels. Reminds me of the wife. She's riding in the car with her husband. She says, aren't you driving a little too fast, dear? Husband counters. He says, don't you believe in guardian angels? Our guardian angel will protect us. Imagine a speeding husband getting spiritual on his wife. She replied, well, I do, but you left him miles back. She apparently didn't believe that angels drive. She believed that angels drove the speed limit, whether we do or not. Exactly how, I don't know, but somehow we're going to judge angels. And, of course, this is a heavy responsibility, which obviously means that in the here and now, we should at least be able to settle our own differences. Paul continues, he says, If then you have judgments concerning things pertaining to this life, do you appoint those who are least esteemed by the church to judge? (coughs) If the Corinthians had a secular matter to decide, they would rush to recruit the help of their brightest and their fairest-minded folks to sort it out. And yet these disputes that were tearing up the church were being neglected. Again, Paul asks, I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you, not even one, who will be able to judge between his brethren? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? Paul's asking the Corinthians, isn't there one wise brother among you that you trust enough to settle these issues between you? Apparently not. It was as if they were taking their disputes before Judge Judy. And the world was scoffing, mocking them. What a poor testimony this was, that they couldn't settle their own disputes, that you'd need Judge Judy. Paul says it would be better to avoid court altogether and be cheated out of a few dollars than to go before a secular judge and give the world the impression that Christians can't settle their own disputes. He'd rather a church member be cheated than the cause of Christ be stained. That's what he says in the next verse. He says, now therefore, it is already an utter failure for you that you go to law against one another. Why do you not rather accept wrong? Why do you not rather let yourselves be cheated? Better to be defrauded. Better for you to take a personal hit than to disgrace the name of Christ by taking your brother to court. That's Paul's thinking. In other words, we should be willing to suffer personally before we let Christ suffer publicly. He says, no, you yourselves do wrong and cheat, and you do these things to your brethren. It was a shame what was occurring in Corinth. You know, in most families, the unwritten rule is not to air your dirty laundry in public. The worst thing to do for your marriage, of course, is to hash over your spouse's problems in a public setting. Ladies, don't chat up your husband's faults at the next ladies' brunch. 
I mean, the problem in Corinth was not that the Christians couldn't get along. As long as Christians are subject to their flesh, quarrels will occur. But we should be discreet about it, and we should settle our disputes in-house. The church should moderate its own conflicts, not the civil courts. Well, Paul writes in verse 9, he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither fornicators. And here Paul embarks on a list of lifestyles that will keep you out of heaven. These people do not inherit the kingdom of God. And first on this list are fornicators. The Greek word is pornos. It's, from which, it's, from the, it's the word from which we get our word pornography. This is really a sweeping term. It's a broad term that referred to basically any and all forms of illicit sexual activity. Prostitution, adultery, living together before marriage, hooking up, friends with benefits, incest, pedophilia, threesomes, etc., 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 this all fell, fell under the category of pornos. Pornos included everything from seeing a pretty girl and thinking a lustful thought to grotesque bestiality. And sadly, the internet has made both available at the click of a mouse. Paul is warning that if you keep clicking that mouse, if you continually and persistently indulge in these perversions, it will rot out your soul. You get in a rut from which you may never escape. Realize Paul isn't saying that a person who is tempted and falls in a moment of weakness can't inherit the kingdom of God. That would contradict a host of other scriptures. Jesus provides forgiveness for his people. But what he is saying here is that a real relationship with God will protect us from an uninterrupted lifestyle of sexual sin. There is victory in Jesus. We can overcome. Paul continues, he said, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites. A literal translation of the end of verse 9 reads, nor effeminate, nor abusers. In other words, he's referring to both the passive and the active participants in a homosexual act. Again, this doesn't mean that a person who struggles with homosexual thoughts and tendencies can't be a Christian. Not so. Even if a person stumbles and falls to temptation, there is still forgiveness in Jesus' name. But what this does mean is that a man or a woman who accepts homosexual relationships as a legitimate form of sexual expression and practices these behaviors is void of repentance. And it's the unrepentant person who Paul says will not inherit the kingdom of God. His list continues in verse 10. Nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And again, what applies to homosexuals also goes for thieves and for greedy people and for alcoholics. Paul is saying if a person engages in the uninterrupted, unrepentant practice of sin, it's evidence that there is something wrong in their relationship with God. 
Though that person might say they're a Christian, the evidence speaks otherwise. And notice again the weightiness of Paul's words. These folks will not inherit the kingdom of God. These people will not be walking the halls of heaven. I know these are hard words. But let me try and put this passage in what I think is the proper context. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8 is written to Christians. And John tells us there, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Understand, nowhere in the Scripture does it say that a Christian is perfect. And if they're not perfect, they won't make it to heaven. Nowhere does it say that. In fact, John says just the opposite. If you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself, and the truth is not in you. All Christians sin at times. We stumble and covet our neighbor's stuff. We lose our temper. We drink too much. Sometimes it's a sexual sin. But we don't do it perpetually. When it happens, we stop and we repent and we get back up. But in 1 John chapter 3, verse 8, the same John wrote this. If we say we have no sin, the same John who wrote, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, also writes this. Whoever has been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. The idea is that a believer born of God can't continue in sin. He can stray. He can slip. But God's Spirit will recalibrate his course. Conviction comes and nudges him back into God's will. An unbeliever occasionally slips up and does good. But he's a sinner at heart, isn't he? And thus sin colors his path. Whereas a believer might slip up and sin, but God's Spirit lives in him. Love for God and love for others shape him. Paul is essentially saying that when a believer sins, it is out of character for him. Whereas when a life is lived hostile to the will of God, it won't inherit heaven. Does that make sense? Did I explain it? Hope so. Verse 11, and I love the first six words in verse 11. These are perhaps, to me, the most hopeful words in all of the Bible. Paul writes, And such were some of you. This is one of the most grace-soaked and blood-bought lines in all the Scripture. Apparently, the Corinthian church, the church, the saints, consisted of former fornicators and ex-adulterers and recovering idolaters and homosexuals leaving the lifestyle and sodomites and thieves and former covetous people and former drunkards and former revilers and former extortionists. The Corinthian Christians didn't come from good moral upbringings. You think they had, of course they had struggles. This wasn't a bunch of Boy Scouts and brownies. This was the wild bunch. But notice the operative word, were, and such were some of you. That was all in the past now. They've been changed. They've been transformed in Christ. They've become a new creation. Paul says to them later, Old things are passed away. 
Now all things have become new. That's the gospel, friends. Jesus turns the hellions into heirs of heaven. Paul writes, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Man, I love this. But you were washed, and you were sanctified, and you were justified. Look at how Jesus has changed you and me. You were filthy, but now you've been washed. Do you believe that? Do you live in that truth? You should. You were worthless, but now you've been sanctified and set apart and made special. Your status has been elevated. You were guilty, but now you've been justified. He treats you as if you'd never sinned. He's cleaned us, and he's elevated us, and he's forgiven us. He's changed our lives. And now he tells us how to live. For in verse 12, Paul documents the Christian ethic. You know, the Jews have ten commandments. Islam has their five laws. But Christianity also has its do's and don'ts. And here is the moral code by which all Christians in all cultures at all times should live by. And quite frankly, it's shocking. For here he says, All things are lawful for me, but all things are not helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Now talk about a loose and permissive code of conduct. All things are lawful. (laughs) Don't tell me that Christianity is repressive. The person who accuses Christianity of being strict and legalistic hasn't read verse 12 of 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Christianity has no taboos. Anything goes. You can't get any freer than all things are lawful. Yet read the rest of the sentence. But all things are not helpful. See, the Christian is free from the law, from the list of do's and don'ts. God has made life for us much simpler. Rather than governed by law, He wants us to be governed by love. Here's how Christianity works. Rather than God assigning you rules, He sends His Spirit to rule over you. He changes you from the inside out. Our hearts first. Whereas once our nature was to buck God and to beat out others, Now the Holy Spirit supplies us with a new nature, one that loves God and that loves our neighbor. The issue by which the Christian judges a deed is no longer is it lawful, but is it helpful? Will this activity deepen my love for Christ? Will it benefit my brother? The decision-making filter for us is no longer law, but love. See, laws are like a leash on a wild dog. They choke the dog from doing what he really wants to do. Whereas Christianity doesn't need laws and leashes. For we've been transformed from a dog into a child of God. What we really want to do is to love God and love others. It's our nature now to love. The goal for us is to get our behavior in line with our nature. Not force our behavior to do something contrary to our nature. So Paul writes, all things are lawful for me, 
but I will not be brought under the power of any. Here's the Christian concern when it comes to our conduct. Since Christ died to make me free, my priority then should be to stay free. Thus, anything that threatens to take away my freedom and impose a bondage on me becomes sin to me. In other words, if I'm not free to put it down, then I'm not free to pick it up. Again, here is the Christian ethic according to Paul. I am free to participate if it's helpful and if it doesn't rob me of my freedom, the freedom from which, for which Christ died. Take alcohol, for example. You're free to drink a glass of wine just as long as you're free to stop after one glass of wine. Some people have a psychological, a physiological propensity that makes them addictive to alcohol. In fact, I've heard statistics where it's as high as one out of every eight people. It's quite a few of us. But if that's you, then it's a sin for you to take the first sip. If you can't stop with one, you're not free to have one. And this is the only rule for a Christian. Do what you want as long as it doesn't cause you to fumble away your faith or cause your neighbor's faith to stumble. Christian isn't governed by law. We're governed by love. Verse 13. Foods for the stomach and the stomach for foods but God will destroy both it and them. I suppose not smoking cigarettes, not eating a lot of red, fatty meat has some health benefits. Probably keeps your lungs clear and your arteries open. But Paul is saying that in the long run, we're all dead anyway. The dead guy who was healthy an hour before he got hit by a truck, and the dead guy who was sickly an hour before his body finally expired, are both equally dead, are they not? The ancient world, you see, was full of dietary and aesthetic regulations that supposedly made you better than other people, supposedly uh, gained you favor with the gods. But here Paul tells the Corinthians that neither feasting or fasting, kosher or non-kosher, Cholesterol or no cholesterol, gluten or gluten-free. All of that has zero impact on your status with God and your internal destiny. God ultimately destroys both the stomach and the food, he says. But here was the problem. The Corinthians understood that. But they had mistakenly taken the same attitude toward sex. You see, the Corinthian attitude, the Corinthian logic is a lot like that of today. The Corinthians would have said, I've got a hunger drive. I've got a thirst drive. I've got a sleep drive. And I've got a sex drive. So since it's not a sin to eat anything I want or drink anything I want or sleep as long as I want, it must not matter to God then if I have sex whenever and with whomever I want. That was faulty thinking, but that was the Corinthian thinking. It's our thinking today. And for the remainder of this chapter, Paul offers his correction to that thinking. He writes this. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. 
And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his power. Now here's Paul's logic. The Lord isn't all that interested in what you do to your body. You can take care of it and live to 100, or you can eat potato chips and drop dead at 40. That's up to you. That's not God's chief concern. He's going to resurrect and perfect your body one day anyway. What you do to your body is not nearly as important to God as what you do with your body. This is what matters to God. For as Paul said to the Romans, your body should be an instrument for righteousness. Notice verse 15. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Yet this is what happens when two people have sex outside the security of heterosexual marriage. You become a harlot. You sell your soul. If not for money, you do it for a night of pleasure and lust or for the acceptance of the other person or for who knows what reason. He continues, he says, Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. See, Paul is saying that unlike eating and drinking and sleeping, sexual activity carries with it deep spiritual connotations. Sex isn't just another bodily function. It's a spiritual act as well as a physical act. It brings two people together. It causes a oneness to occur. It interlocks souls and spirits. It symbolizes and imparts eternal relationships as well. It even symbolizes our eternal relationship with God. See, I like to think of sexual relationships as superglue. When you have sex with someone, it creates an unbreakable bond. And try to pull an item apart after it's been superglued, and it doesn't separate as easily as it joined, does it? No. In fact, there's some ripping and there's some tearing, not just at the point where the two parties met and touched, but the tear goes deeper and it becomes broader, and you end up ripping and tearing things you didn't mean to. And this is what happens with sex. It doesn't just interlock two bodies. But whether you realize it or not, the sex act fuses together two souls, two spirits. And when they separate, there is an emotional and spiritual tearing that occurs. A man once wrote a letter to Ann Landers seeking advice. She posted it. Dear Ann, I've been sleeping with three women for several months. Until a few days ago, none of them knew the others existed. Things were fine. By chance, two of them met, compared notes, and found me out. Now they're furious with me. What am I going to do? P.S. Please don't give me any of your moral junk. Signed, Trapped. (laughs) Well, Anne published her reply. Dear Trapped, the one major thing that separates the human race from animals is a God-given sense of morality. Since you don't have a sense of morality, I strongly suggest you consult a veterinarian. Good for Ann Landers. 
Tragically, today's society mistakenly sees human sexuality as little more than an animal instinct. But Paul is saying the sex act carries with it profound spiritual implications. When you become a Christian, your body is no longer your own. You become the property of Jesus. Literally, your body is the body of Christ. He indwells within you. His spirit dwells in your spirit. Thus, verse 17 says, He who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. That means that if you engage in any form of sex outside the boundaries of heterosexual marriage, you are prostituting Jesus' body. That's you. You've sold out fidelity to Jesus for the cheap thrill of a moment's pleasure. When a believer logs on to a pornographic website, you have logged the body of Christ onto that website. For a believer to climb into bed with another man's wife, you have pulled the sheets over the body of Christ. When a believer walks into a strip club, it's the body of Christ that you've escorted into that strip club. Participate in sex outside of marriage, and you're not just risking emotional rejection or an STD or an unwanted pregnancy or AIDS. More importantly, you are violating the spiritual bond between you and your Lord. You are prostituting Christ's body. If you're one spiritually to Jesus, why would you defile that union by being illicitly joined to someone else? Sex outside of marriage betrays the fidelity between Christ and his body. And that's why Paul writes to the believers in verse 18. He says, flee sexual immorality. Flee it. A teenager once asked his grandfather, Gramps, your generation didn't have all these venereal diseases. What did you wear to have safe sex? Oh, Gramps replied, son, we wore a wedding ring. You recall Joseph? Joseph was in Potiphar's house. Mrs. Potiphar was wearing an item out of the Victoria's Secrets catalog. When suddenly she dropped her bathrobe right in front of him. Nobody was home. No one would ever know. Joseph stood there in shock. I'll bet his pulse raced. I'll bet his hormones surged. She threw herself at him. She grabbed his cloak, started to undress him. As she invited him, lie with me. And what did Joseph do? Genesis 39 verse 12 tells us, he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. He got out of Dodge. He didn't pray for her. He didn't counsel her. He didn't try to befriend the poor lady. He got out of Dodge. He fled as fast as he could. When the devil stirs up a desire and temptation makes a pass at you, recall Paul's words and Joseph's example. Flee sexual immorality. Don't sit and try to fight. Split and take flight. Preserve your purity at all costs. Don't defile yourself for a night of pleasure. Four. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. 
But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Realize every person's core identity is tied to some degree to their sexuality. Maleness and femaleness are part of it, but it goes even deeper. Our capacity to reproduce ourselves is tied to our sexuality. That's not true of other bodily functions. What I put in my stomach sustains me, but it has nothing to do with me multiplying in my likeness. That's why watching me eat has no bearing on my identity or my personality. But if you saw me naked, I would blush. Instinctively, we realize that that's a far greater deal. And this is why every time you become intimate with someone, you give away part of yourself to that person. You, you in essence, break a little piece of yourself off and give it to that person that you can never get back. As Paul says, you share your spirit. And when you give yourself away without a guarantee for a forever return, it only cheapens you. It only degrades your sense of self-worth. This is one reason why Paul says sexual sin is a sin against your own body. Allow yourself to be used as a plaything over and over rather than be valued as a person and it ultimately devastates your own dignity and self-worth. Illicit sex may produce enjoyment and excitement, but it doesn't provide enrichment. And that's why God created sex, to enrich the love of a marital couple. Hey, sex outside of marriage is like robbing your own bank account. What you've saved, what should be your treasure, gets stolen from you by you. You never see it again. Whereas sex in marriage is like making a deposit into your own account. There's safety there. There's security there. And the deposit becomes a long-term investment that compounds interest and that yields some very rewarding dividends. Verse 19 sums it up. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, And you are not your own. The temple was God's Old Testament habitation. The temple had an owner, one owner. It was God's house. And it had a single purpose, the service and worship of God. And likewise, your body has one owner, and that's the Holy Spirit. You are the habitation of the Holy Spirit. Your body belongs to God. It was purchased by the blood of Jesus, and it has one purpose. You're not free to use it as you please. It, too, is for service and worship, which is how Paul finishes chapter 6. For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Amen.